Boom. 2021. We made it. What's happening? Real Drug Talk podcast family. My name's Jack Nagel. I don't know why I introduce myself like I'm someone. I just figure I better do it because there might be some new people listening. Probably not. <laughs> but just in case there is. Um, and this is the Real Drug Talk podcast where we talk about all things alcohol and drugs and addiction. Um, oh, I'm so glad it's 2021. I literally just rolled over the line of 2020, just made it through. Um the, th- the thing that I learned about 2020 was that I have a food addiction or something along those lines. <laughs> no, just joking, but I never realized how much shit I could eat. Um, I'm from Melbourne uh, for the international li- listeners. We have a few and we're on harsh lockdowns for pretty much most of 2020. And then we got let out just before you know, the holiday season, Christmas and New Year's and all that stuff. And then obviously Christmas and New Year's happen and then you just eat again. Um, So 2020 was just about feeding my belly (laughs) Um, and I have the guts to prove it. So I'm literally just so excited for 2021. We're out, sun's starting to come out here in Melbourne, Australia um, and can make 2021 about health and fitness and working off some of those extra kgs. But I'm also excited because we're relaunching the podcast in 2021 and same same old, same old, but completely new, you know, uh, just to put a nice little spin on it. Um, and the completely new part is that we're really going to have a go this year. So kind of got act together a little bit, invested in some new equipment. Um, we're going to have the video podcast up and running on our YouTube channel. We would love it if you could head over there, Real Drug Talk on YouTube and subscribe. Um, we're gonna, we've got lots of different kinds of interviews lined up this year. Um, so we're excited about that. Maybe some of them might be a touch controversial um, and outside the norm. Um, so we'll see what happens there. Um, and yeah, just excited to kind of get into it a little bit. Um and just see where we can go with the show and and see how much reach we can have um because i know podcasts weren't quite in the um in the vernacular just towards the end of my drug using and i reckon if they were out i definitely would have been listening to shows like this um at some point in my addiction space and it could have helped me to you know push me to reach out and get help somewhere so that's pretty cool um i feel like i just had to jump on as an intro for the first podcast of the year and just say you know we're back we're ready to go um we have lots and lots of stuff happening new stuff happening to start off um 2021 with the different um businesses that we have with connection-based living you know online programs all this different stuff i'm not going to get into it now because it's too much um but we just want to make our show um, the best it can possibly be and focus on getting the message of recovery out there and also, you know, the conversation of drugs and alcohol out there so that, you know, we can change policies and laws and all that kind of stuff. Um, In actual fact, we'll probably won't fucking do any of that. (laughs) It'll probably just be me in the office um talking to other people and having really interesting conversations which will do me just fine which is good so 
Hope you enjoy everything to come in your own life in 2021, but hope you enjoy the show in 2021 as well. Um, We're going to try and give it a little nudge and again, see where we can go. Worst case scenario, I'll just be sitting here talking shit with a bunch of other (laughs) no-hopers for for the whole year. Um, And, you know, that'd be pretty cool regardless. Um, So just... First things first, if you can just jump on to YouTube, we're going to have all the video podcasts coming out, Real Drug Talk on YouTube. Um, subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Leave us a little review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us jump up the ranks, all that kind of stuff. That'd be awesome. Um, and I hope you enjoy what we've got for you this year. So um, the first show, I'm really excited about it. Uh, we've got Ryan Hassan. Now, this was a great interview. Ryan Hassan is the founder of the Center for Healing. It started off as the Melbourne Center for Healing and then just turned into the Center of Healing because they help people Australia-wide and probably over the world and stuff like that. Um, and this was an amazing interview and an amazing conversation that I had with him. I've known Ryan for probably five years now um, and I'm very aligned with him on a lot of things Um, and I must say the way that he articulates uh, the addiction experience and the way that you feel and think when you're in the mix of it is um, really interesting. It goes into his story in the podcast which is crazy to hear as well. I'd never heard the long form version of that Um, and he's doing some really cool things now. Um, still running kind of the center of healing program online, but then also training other practitioners and professionals um, to deliver their therapy modalities and, you know, do different stuff, which is really cool. So it was a really interesting conversation and an awesome podcast to kick us off for 2021. Um, So we're excited for you to hear that. Um, Yeah. So hope you enjoy the show. As I said, if you can jump in, subscribe to the YouTube channel, like the podcast, have a listen, give us a review. Introductions won't always be this long. Don't worry. It's just the start of 2021. Um, and yeah, enjoy the first show. In three, two, one, boom. Um, happy new year, everyone. Welcome to another show. Now I'm aware that I've done an introduction before you guys are listening to this um because i tend to fuck them up ryan so i'm i uh i do them after the show but i feel compelled to introduce ryan and i was we were talking beforehand just last year for me personally was crazy and i've been meaning to kind of have ryan on and and you know chat to him a bit more and do some more stuff through our real drug talk platform because um it's kind of funny. Ryan has been someone that really has been a leader in the space and actually in terms of proximity, well, not at the moment, but previously lived kind of quite close to me or had his offices quite close to me. Um, and it's been nothing short of amazing to see all the cool stuff that he's managed to spread throughout the alcohol and drug industry. And a lot of people might have heard of him already. So um, we're excited to have him on. Um, how are you, mate? I'm good, mate. I'm, I'm excited to be on. It's good to see your face again, as we were speaking about before you press record. It's, uh, it's been too long. I know. I know. It's, uh, it's crazy. I can't believe we're in... I'm thankful we're in 2021, but I can't believe it's shot past that quickly. So you're currently um, overseas, right? You're, you're not in Australia. 
No, so we were just, uh, we were pretty much neighbours for a while there, you know, once we connected and you yeah. said, oh, hey, my, my office and I live just around the corner from you, you know, our centre was uh, in Cheltenham for, for around four years or so. And um, yeah, about, what are we now, about 10 months or so ago, you know, at the start of 2019, end of 2018, uh, sorry, end of 2019, start of 2020, we decided to move, move our services online. Um, just before all the, the COVID stuff hit, funnily enough. Sorry. So I don't know if we had a, had a dream or something, I don't know. But um, so we moved everything online. That was, you know, therapy online, but also moving more into the education space and also practitioner yeah. space. And we had a um, young boy, still do have a young boy. You know, he was one at the time, if that, um, and he's two now. And we thought while he was young, you know, we wanted to do a bit of travel. And, and if we moved our business yeah. online, we were able to do the travel. So um, we've been in Thailand for the last 10 months and I, I put flows just listening um air quotes stuck in thailand <laughs> it's a really, really really nice place to be stuck um yeah. so we've been here for the last 10 months or so and um yeah working online spending a lot of time with our boy and and, and sort of doing what we can mate mate that's that's unbelievable and for a lot of people listening i i actually imagine um that there's probably a few people that have um seen a lot of your stuff yours and mel's stuff through the center of healing um because uh, that's what I think is awesome about what, what Ryan's done is he's sort of, um, again, I was saying this to Ryan, it's not, not for us, but, you know, inverted commas, brought some of the stuff that really works in addiction treatment to the forefront through, you know, his social media platforms and stuff. And it's been really cool to see a lot of people have that shift. So I'm excited to talk a bit about that. But I actually wanted to um, chat to you about, what got you into all of this and your personal story and journey with, you know, addiction and mental health and stuff like that, because yeah, I've seen little snippets and stuff um, through some cool videos on social media, but I've never heard like kind of the se sequential blow by blow yeah. Uh, story. Yeah. So where should I start from about birth or conception? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go before conception. Let's go Let's in go. the womb. <laughs> Let's go to my, my past life as a, as a yeah. cobbler or something. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, look, I, I, I was a tradesman, you know, I was an air conditioning mechanic for 11 years and now became, you know, trauma therapist and business owner and working with people wow. with addiction and mental health That's issues. That's a massive and like, shift, isn't it? I, don't, I always tell people, I'm like, you don't kind of, you don't do it on a whim. You don't just decide I want to go for this career change. You have to have kind of gone through some stuff in your own personal journey. So for me, you know, if I want to date things back, like let's start to maybe when I was around 10 years old, probably like grade three or four at school and I started to get these feelings of anxiety um, yeah. you know, daily and, and back then I, I would have never had the language of that I would have never been like hey I'm anxious or hey I'm feeling this um, you know yeah. I was in a household like many many other kids who you know loving parents mum and dad are awesome but you know we never spoke about emotions we never sat yeah. down at the end of the day and said hey how are you feeling <laughs> you know it was like you know how did we do at school um, how are we doing with footy how are we doing with cricket all of that kind of stuff but um, you know it was something that was never spoken about but looking back yeah. now I, was, I would start to get these feelings of I call it dread yeah. Um, in my day-to-day -day life, whether that was in social situations, in situations at school, um, even around sport. Like, I was just a sport mad kid, like a lot of boys in Australia. And I ended yeah. up um, quitting football at, at probably and cricket at the age of around 14. And I remember at the time, <clears throat> I just said, oh, I don't, I don't like it anymore. But that wasn't true. <laughs> I wasn't being yeah. honest. I would just get 
so much anxiety and fear and pressure on myself around playing well um, yeah. that, I, that I ended up quitting because I, I hated those feelings that were going on in the system. So I sort of dealt with these feelings of I would call dread and anxiety without telling anyone, you know, I thought maybe I was the only one who felt it or I just wanted to escape from those feelings. So I would not do things that would bring those feelings on. So, you know, even at school, looking back, I was always just trying to blend in, you know, trying to be one of the, one of the sheep, not kind of stand out too much. Um, yeah. I never did that well at school, but I did enough to get by. And just sort of went through life and I got to sort of the, those te early teenage years and I found alcohol and like a lot of kids do. And I, I noticed not consciously, but looking back, oh, this is what happened. I started drinking this liquid and I'm like, hang on, those feelings of dread and anxiety are starting to go away <laughs> for a short amount of time. So that started, you know, a lot of drinking, a lot of binge drinking throughout my teenage years. Like that's not too um, unnormal when it comes to our culture. So so can I ask, because that's, that's really interesting. I actually got hair stand up on my, uh, on my arms there because very similar um, story. I've never heard anyone really articulate it like that, to be honest. I you know, was really into sport. I had that kind of anxiety as well. Um, and the thing I wanted to ask you and for people listening, because that's the, exactly the same thing that happened to me um, with when I picked up alcohol and drugs. I, it kind of felt like those feelings went away. But I would say at the time, I just wasn't like conscious of it. Were you like conscious that, oh, this is actually taking these feelings of anxiety away or, or you were just sort of going with it? You just knew that you felt better. I was completely unconscious. Uh, I, I, I was unconscious of the feelings that I was having, the reason why alcohol was so attractive to me. Um, I was just in an unconscious. I had no idea. Yeah, this is now me with all the knowledge that I have and understanding now looking back and going, oh, this is what was happening with that kid. And this is often why it's good. You know, when I start to talk to people who are coming in now with a, as an adult with an issue with drugs, alcohol, depression, anxiety, you can start to help them understand themselves a little bit better. Because those, yeah. those feelings that I was having, which I never even had a label for the dread or the the anxiety or the fear I just knew that it was it was yuck and I would do anything I could to not feel it or to get away from it you know yeah. and so when I had alcohol yeah I didn't think oh that feeling's going away I just thought wow this is great <laughs> I can like I can like talk to people and not worry so much uh, about what they're thinking of me and you know those inhibitions come down um, but like I said for a short amount of time and then you know I went through and I had this idea in my head that I, I would never do like illegal drugs. I smoked a bit of pot, but like pot, I just did not agree with me for whatever reason. Yeah. I did, I did it a few times. I had a good mate who smoked it all the time and I do it a few times with him and I just, uh, yeah, I just didn't like it. I'd become just a bit of a zombie. Whereas I, I yeah. liked, uh, and this started a love affair with stimulants later on in my life, but I always liked, uh, stimulants as opposed to depressants. And, um, it was my 20th birthday that my friend said, Hey, we're getting some, um, ecstasy tablets um do you want to try and i'm like yeah let's do it and that started a whole new love affair from there because i thought hey if alcohol is making that feeling go away for a bit for a short amount yeah. of time this tablet this is making it completely disappear right and yeah. all of a sudden i'm like wow i can connect with strangers i can connect with my friends on a deeper level than i normally would um i just don't feel fear um in regards to situations in my life and you know, it's funny from, from that point on, I thought to myself at the time, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this as much as possible for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And, and once again, this is hindsight looking back. Um, I may have had an inkling at the time, but, but never thought too deeply about it. But I would always find it strange that I had a, you know, different groups of friends that we would go out with. And I was going every weekend, like I said, yeah. as soon as, you know, Friday night it was on 
you know, till Sunday night or Monday morning, I'd be a zombie at work till about Wednesday or Thursday, come good. And then the whole cycle would start again. And that happened for a couple of years. And basically I always thought it was strange because I'd go out with these groups of friends and they would be taking the exact same drug in the exact same amount and they would have a bit of fun. It was someone's birthday, they'd have a bit of fun and they wouldn't do it again for a few months and not really think about it. And maybe it was yep. another celebration and it was available and they'd do it. And I was like, what is wrong with them? <laughs> like for, for me, like it was having such a different effect. I just wanted to do it over and over again. It's like looking back now, yeah. it's like the exact same substance in the same amount, but a different effect for the individual. Why? Because I have all this underlying dread and anxiety, not to mention anger, sadness, all these emotions that I was unconscious of that were bubbling away in my system that would disappear for that amount of time. So it's like, yeah. it's raising me up much more than someone else. Whereas if someone else has a, has a different baseline and they use that, might, you know, feel really good and have a great time and then have the shitty come down and be like, all right, I'll do that again, maybe in a few months. So I'm yeah. um, always very yeah. interesting in hindsight to look back. So that started, you know, ecstasy speed, um, moved on to ice, uh, GHB, um, ketamine, you know, kind of whatever was available in the, in the, party drug kind of scene you know raves every weekend that kind of thing um i I would looking back kind of call myself a functional drug addict at that point because you know that was if we're looking at a definition of addiction you know i like um i think gabo mate has a very good definition it's like any behavior doesn't have to be drugs any behavior that you find craving in or relief in doing but despite it having negative consequences in other areas of your life, you're unable to stop. And it yeah. definitely was having negative consequences in other areas of my life, especially at work. You know, I was unable to function. You know, I was, I was missing, uh, you know, family events and that kind of thing. So I'd rather yeah. go out and use drugs as opposed to catch up on the weekend with family. So, you know, I, I was still somehow holding down my job as an air conditioning mechanic met a girl, fell in love, you know, I was doing all the right things from a, from an outside looking in perspective. We've got a house, the mortgage, got the dog, you know, kind of the, the next step was, you know, kids and, and a happily ever after story. And, you know, a lot of friends and family would just look at my life and go, man, he is just absolutely killing it. He's got this high paying job and the wife and blah, blah, blah. But internally, you know, now moving into my mid to late twenties, I'm still struggling with this anxiety, this dread, which once again, I still don't have language for, and I still, I still won't tell anyone about. Yeah. And I think we'll get to, we'll get to the issue of vulnerability, but I had this strong belief and these strong walls up around letting anyone know what I was feeling inside. Even my ex-wife, I was with her for 10 years and, you know, I divulged a bit, but I would never tell her what was really going on because I, I I literally didn't have the capacity to do that. And a lot of, I don't want to stereotype, but a lot of men have that trouble. It's like, even if I do have a lot of stuff going on inside, I don't even have the language or the capacity or the confidence in myself to be able to articulate that to someone else. And that doesn't have to be a a therapist, but even like, you know, wife, family member, whoever it is. So where do you think that belief came from? I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you. Because that's, that's the work, a lot of the work that I do now is finding out where yeah. these beliefs actually come from, you know. And so I, I get to the point where I'm kind of this, this functional drug addict and it's, it's, it's getting quite bad. And, you know, when the, when the ice, the methamphetamine comes in, that adds another level because then I'm awake for like, you know, a long time, days and days at a time. 
And then all of a sudden my, my marriage breaks down because of these, you know, me holding everything in, you know, we just slowly were drifting apart. Yeah. And when you yeah. don't address that, you get to a point where you're like, Oh shit, you're over here and I'm over here. And, and you know, that we ended up breaking up and that was something that I just didn't see happening. And so this is kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I kind of went from functional drug addict to very dysfunctional drug addict in a very short amount of time. So, you know, I, yeah. I left my, I left my job started using ice and ghb every day um ran through whatever money i had um at that point you know we, we'd sold our house that we had together had a little bit of money from that blew through that really fast once yeah. the money was gone i started dealing to support my habit um which wow. is what 99 percent of dealers are doing they're just trying to support their own habit um, i yeah. moved out to a drug house in the eastern suburbs uh, of melbourne a place where people just came and went all the time no one really slept uh i ended up i was dating a girl who was a drug addict and dealer as well and i just went really just head first into that lifestyle you know yeah. so my, my my whole day it's it's a <laughs> it's not an easy life but it's a simple life because my whole day consisted of buying selling and using drugs that was it yeah. <laughs> that was my only things on my mind every day Right. And so I would go through this cycle and I would, you know, I'd be awake for about four days at a time. I'd sleep for about 20 to 24 hours awake for four days at a time. Um, you know, barely eating, like forgetting to eat, you know, I'd normally, I'd be on the way to a drug deal and see like a McDonald's at 3am or something. And I'm like, Oh shit, I haven't eaten in a day. Bang, pull in, smash some food, uh, go out. So I lost just, just a massive amount of weight. And then also, running into trouble with the law, um, overdosing. Like I was using really high amounts of GHB um, yeah. and methamphetamine every day. I was overdosing on GHB every second day, if not every day. One of them was at the wheel of my car on a freeway. Um, I thank the universe or whoever that, that I didn't run into another car and I just ran into a concrete wall. Um, so just life, life was just a complete mess a complete mess um i ended up in a yeah high-speed car chase i was with a girl who would uh i'll tell the story quickly because it's it's a good one yeah 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 i'd um i'd because because when i crashed my car on the freeway um it was a write-off and so i had no car to get around and and deal drugs and so i i had these two people who would drive for me so to speak and then this one day they weren't available so a, a friend of a friend's like oh i know someone and so that they were driving me around and anyway we, we drive into a, a car park in Baronia, out in the east of, um, of Melbourne, and a, and a car pulls in behind us, a four-wheel drive, Ford Territory, and um, and she starts freaking out. She's like, "Oh, I think that's undercover cops." And I'm like, "Yeah, who cares? Don't worry about it." <laughs> and so we keep driving, and they follow us for a minute or so, and then the lights come on, and um, she's like, "Oh shit!" And I'm like, "I oh, just just pull over, you know." I had a heap of drugs in the boot, but I'm like, "We'll just you know see what they want." And um, then she looks at me and goes, "Sorry," and just plants her foot and speeds out of this car park. And she runs through these red lights. This car's going this way. I'm like, what are you oh, doing? Wow. She's like, oh, this car's stolen. I'm like, right. <laughs> you probably should have told me that before we jumped in the car. And so we had a, you know, a high-speed car chase all through the east of Melbourne. Um, we ended up in a park in, in Roeville with about 10 cop cars chasing us across a park. And anyway, crazy stuff, right? So I ended up get away? A... Did, you get, did you get away? No. <laughs> i got to a point where i'm like i can keep running or i can stop but i can see these police about 100 meters away running and then in my head because what i'd done i'd i'd thrown my uh bag of phones and drugs and everything over this fence and then i thought to myself well hang on they're probably going to catch me anyway i was in the passenger seat didn't know the car was stolen i'm just going to see what happens right yeah. so they get me arrest me 
back of the divvy van, take me into the police station, questioning me for a few hours. And they were, um, you know, just about to let me go. Cause I'm like, yeah, I only met this girl last night. I don't even know who she is, blah, blah, blah. And then, um, uh, an off duty police officer walking his dog had seen me throw this bag over a fence. So Unbelievable. They, 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 they went and retrieved the bag. So just before they let me go, they came in and just went, uh, we found your bag. And that had like three phones or messages about, you know, four or $5,000 worth of drugs. <laughs> and so that I was done. I was finished, you know? So um, I ended up spending a few nights in remand. Um, that was kind of a moment. I remember sitting in, um, can't remember which jail it was, but I was just sort of in this, you know, classic concrete cell, just white cell, looking at this white wall. And I'm just thinking, how the hell did I end up here? How the hell did this, you know, middle-class kid with a loving family from Murrubak end up sitting in a jail cell, starting to withdraw yeah. from ICE and GHB? And um, crazy moment, you know, and I did a lot of soul searching in there um, for those few nights that I was in jail. And I ended up, uh, I got out on bail. It was classic. I ended up, I was transferred into the city um, in this cell with six other guys, you know, all day and toilet in the corner. And I ended up, because I'd never been in that situation before. I'm like, I don't even know what's going on. Then I, all of a sudden I get the handcuffs taken out into a courtroom. There's like kids on excursion from school in the courtroom. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And um, I got bailed <laughs> and, and I got, I got bailed. And um, kind of just pushed out into the middle of the streets of Melbourne on a Thursday night, Thursday afternoon. And um, no one had known I'd been arrested. And I had no money because they'd taken all my money because the proceeds of crime and they'd taken my cards. And I had a, um, a <laughs> I had like a Coles Meyer $20 voucher or something that someone had used to buy drugs off me like <laughs> a week before. So I went and got some food because I was fucking starving. And then I go to like an internet cafe in the city and I said to the guy, you know, mate, I've just got out of remand. I have no money. Can I use your internet for like one minute? And he was nice. He said, yeah, messaged a friend and they picked me up. And it was funny because that time that I was in prison, I was, you know, detoxing now from the drugs because I've been using them every day for a long time. And I'm like, I'm going to get back in touch with mum and dad, get back in touch with my friends because I had, I'd shut them out during, during the worst of my yeah. addiction. I mean, every, every addict knows that there's so much guilt and shame in the system yeah and a lot of people who kind of look at the addict from an outside and go oh they're just selfish they don't give a, a fuck i'm yet to meet an addict who hasn't got so much guilt and shame in their system it's 100 i actually i actually say the guilt guilt and shame is the biggest killer of people that use drugs for that very reason that they just you know there's so much pent up that's just kind of hanging in the middle of their chest that they just use so many drugs and if they're unlucky, they, they pass away, but it's guilt and shame that's driving that. See that so often. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And it's this, it's like a counterintuitive thing that happens because we get stuck in this loop because it's like, say I go, I, I said that I wasn't going to use and then I go and do it or whatever behavior it is can be anything. Then it's like, well, I have to make myself feel guilty or shameful because that means I won't do it again. It's the yeah. exact opposite <laughs> because if we're, if we're using a compulsive behavior, it means we have an inability to sit with our emotions that are uncomfortable. Yeah. So if I'm stewing in guilt and shame, what am I going to do? Oh, I'm going to do that thing that makes it go away. And then I keep going and going and going and going and just starts this perpetual loop. So, um, for me, my, the way that I dealt with that guilt and shame was to just completely detach from close friends and family. So I hadn't spoken to yeah. them for quite some time and they'd try and call me, message me, and I just wouldn't reply because I just couldn't uh, let them see the person that I had become, you know, yeah. really in that moment. Uh, and so, yeah, in jail, I, I had just decided so much. I'm letting them back in. I'm going to stop using. I just, I'd made all these plans and I said, enough's enough. After I got out, I got bailed. 
less than an hour later, I was using again. <laughs> yeah, all of all of those the grand plans of what I was going to do went out the window because as soon as I went back into the real world, I had all of this stuff that I hadn't dealt with and I just needed to use. Once again, Jack, I'm I'm still very unconscious of why I'm using, right? Yeah. Um, and this is why it's so important for people. The first step is to try and gain some sort of understanding around. So why why do I use? Because I would hang in circles, and you know, you've been there as well, Jack, and a lot of other people. You know, I can see you know, who were addicts and they'd been sexually abused, you know, when they were from five to 10 or someone had been sent away to a camp and been physically abused. And I'm like, Oh, that, that all makes sense. Why, why am I so fucked up? You know, yeah. um, not really, not realizing that I was traumatized in my own way, you know? So yeah. this lifestyle I went back to using, I, I got arrested again. Um, but like I knew something needed to change because I was up on quite serious charges. I was up on, you know, commercial trafficking and, and all this other stuff. So I said, I'd best try and organize some sort of, you know, detox or, or rehab. Um, mm. And I was purely doing it just so it would look good for the court case. I really didn't know how to stop at that point. Yeah. So I started Googling. I'm like, what do drug addicts do? Oh, that's right. They go to rehab. <laughs> so I started Googling rehab and I'm like, all right, there's, there seems to be two options here. There's public or private. Private was like looking like 30 plus thousand dollars. And I'm like, I certainly don't have that. And I'm not going to put that on my parents and then public yeah. at the time in Victoria was a six month waiting list. And I'm like, yeah. I'm, I haven't got six months the way I was living my life, three months, I was going to end up dead or permanently in jail. Um, the yeah. way I was going. So I ended up doing a, a home-based detox with a government company. So basically you, you get a bit of help, you know, you get a, a care and recovery worker, a nurse who touches base and they kind of set you up with appointments. So you can set you up with a doctor, um, set you up with a psychologist, but you're doing, you're just doing it from home. So basically, it's actually, it's actually a really good and like in terms of just the uh, public health initiative, it's actually a really good option for a lot of people, you know, particularly when you were like you, where you were just really desperate for something to change. It sounds like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it was, the, and, and the people that I, I saw in that were fantastic. And, you know, I did, I, I got clean at home for 12 days, um, but then I stopped because it, it's one, I, every addict knows like you can stop, right? Stopping's yeah. not the hard bit, staying stopped is the problem. That's right, that's right. So, so I'd stopped, but I hadn't addressed the reasons why I'd become a drug addict in the first place. You know, so I, I did, I got clean for 12 days. I reconnected with my family and friends, um, which I, I consider myself super lucky because there's so many people who go through addiction and they push people away so much that when they do are ready for help and to be vulnerable, that they are, that their friends and family have kind of been hurt or burnt so many times. They're like, nah, get fucked. <laughs> like right. you've burned us too many times. I was so lucky because I had, um, it started with my friends. I was like, you know, might've been five or six o'clock in the morning, one morning. And after I'd been arrested all of a sudden, because all my, all my worldly possessions had been taken. So the money and the drugs, that was all that I had. And so now all yeah. of a sudden I wasn't, I wasn't the guy who had all, all the drugs. So all my, my good friends in that world stopped messaging me. They weren't checking in to see if I was okay. And I was on my, yeah. um, I was scrolling through some, some messages I wasn't on a phone because my phones had been confiscated. I was on an Xbox. So my old housemate, which I'd gone back to his house, had an Xbox and you can go on the internet with an Xbox. Yep. It's really awkward with a controller. And so <laughs> I, um, I was scrolling through old messages and I'd seen all these messages from, you know, however long before from friends going, mate, where are you? We miss you. We love you. And wow. I, had this moment, I had this moment where I was like, fucking hell, I've given up all these amazing people 
for these people who now don't give a shit about me because I don't have all the drugs and that kind of thing. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to reach out and message. So my friend Milosh, I, <laughs> I messaged him on the Xbox. Now imagine on the Xbox, you have to like go up to a letter and select, then to the next letter and select. So it takes fucking ages. So I wrote, yeah. like, hey man, and that took me ages to write. And so he's got this message, first time he's heard from me in, fuck, I don't know, nine months, a year or something. And he starts freaking out. He's like, bro, where are you? What's going on? And I'm still trying to write the next message. <laughs> and it's taking forever because <laughs> he thinks he's going to lose me again because I'm taking too long to reply. So um, I was so lucky. So him and another friend rock up on my door like literally an hour later. Um, wow. Two other friends rock up a couple of hours after that. And um, then we organized to go and see my parents. That was that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. It's, it's so hard to have you know really compassionate and loving parents to be able to go to them and just say, hey, your son's a drug addict, he's a drug dealer, he's up on serious criminal charges and you know all of wow. that kind of stuff. But it had to be done. And once again, very, very lucky. Mum and dad clearly devastated by that, mm. but still like, okay, what do we do? How can we help? You know. So I was mm. very lucky in that respect. So um, yeah, did this home-based detox, uh, you know, went and saw a doctor. But once again, the, the mainstream system, like the doctor was good, but all he's doing is just giving me drugs to try and help me sleep. Um, yeah you know, antipsychotics, you know, Zyprexa, that kind of thing. And it does work to help sleep, but like a lot of people do have a trouble then um, getting off those kind of things, especially if they get prescribed Valium or whatever it is. Um, so what happened? I, I, I relapsed after 12 days. I got back on it and I got back on it for about a week. And that was kind of the week that changed my life, so to speak. You know, I got arrested again during that week. Um, I, I was set up with an appointment with a psychologist on the Friday of that week. So my care and recovery worker had set that up. So yep, your appointments on Friday. I'm like, all right, I was sort of, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but I'm just going to go and, you know, it'll be good just to talk about stuff. Right. So yeah. I started telling family, telling friends, I'm going to talk to someone. I'm going to talk to someone looking forward to it. Um, so I guess the Thursday morning at about 10 AM, I'm just on the couch off my face again, and I'm just deleting old messages off a phone. And um, I get to this message from the start of the week from my care and recovery worker saying, Oh, so just a reminder that psychologist appointments Thursday at nine o'clock. And I'm like, Oh fuck. Like I just missed it. So, because in my head, I thought it was Friday at nine, but it was Thursday. And so I just missed it. And so I'm beating myself up. I'm like, oh, you fucking idiot, blah, blah, blah. I've missed it. And then like less than an hour later, I get a message on Facebook um, from an old acquaintance, Melissa, um, who I'd met maybe a couple of years prior. We were doing a talk um, on health, funnily enough. Um, and I knew that she was a therapist, but she just reached out randomly and just said, hey, what's been going on? I haven't kind of seen or heard from you in a while. Now, classic me, I would just deflect, deflect, deflect. I'd never talk about my own stuff. So I'm like, yeah. I basically, I just said, I could write you a book on my last, you know, year or two. Um, but how are you? You know, how's business? Blah, blah, blah. Just deflected. And I thought the conversation was over. And then she shoots me one more message just on Messenger. And she goes, I feel a lot of hurt in your heart. And I'm like... I can't argue with that. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, I can't argue with that. I'm like, yes. Yeah. What are you, what are you getting at? And then she goes, oh, can you do something for me? A little exercise. I'm like, yeah, all right, whatever. So um, she goes, grab a pen and paper and go somewhere by yourself. So like I had people in my house who I was using drugs with, grab my laptop. I'm like, I'm just going to my room, boys. I'm talking to someone. So I went in there and um, she goes, just use, she goes, you left or right hand. I'm like, I'm a lefty. She goes, use your right hand. And just write on that bit of paper some of the things that you're feeling at the minute. Like just tune into your body and just write whatever comes out. And it was really confronting for me because I wrote some words like broken, uh, defeated, uh, dead inside, um, scared, 
you know, sad, yeah. right? And this is for someone who had um, made a lifestyle for pretty much their entire life of not acknowledging any negative emotions. It was quite confronting for me. And when you write with your non-dominant hand, it looks like a child's writing. It's kind yeah. of squiggly and, and weird. So like, I look down at this paper and I'm like, Jesus, this is what's actually going on inside me. So it stirred something up in me to her. I said to her, all right, can I come and see you for a session? And she's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And was that, and, and sorry to interrupt, because that's an amazing story. Was that really weird? Like just to be in that situation and just going through that. But it sounds like there was just something driving you saying, this is the right thing to do. Just give it a go. Yeah, yeah because it was just, it was, it was foreign. It was very challenging for me, but still mm. it, it stirred up something inside to where, I don't know, some part of me went, holy crap, if this is actually what's going on inside of you, you need to explore this, right? Yeah. And com combine that, the fact that I was meant to see this psychologist and I fucked up the dates, so I was kind of expecting to talk to someone. So it's just kind of that kind of perfect storm, I suppose. And I go to her, I said, this is kind of what, what really locked it in for me, is that she's like, yeah, we can book in time for next week. And I said to her, no, 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 I need to see you tomorrow, because that was the Friday, because I had this Friday like burnt in my mind. And then about 10 minutes later, she replies, literally someone just canceled tomorrow and I've got an opening so you can come in. And so wow. that's, that's when I was like, I don't believe in much at this point in my life, but I'm just going to go in. So the next day I go in, um, I had no idea what she did as a therapist. Yeah. She, she had no idea I was a drug addict. So I walk into her office and she admitted later to being like, whoa, what the fuck happened to this guy? Because when she saw me last, I was doing a... <clears throat> I was doing a talk on health, you know, and I was, you know, in, in reasonably <laughs> fit shape and that kind of thing. And because the gym used to be another one of my addictions or coping mechanisms back in the day. And yeah. um, I, I walked into her office like 15 kilos lighter, um, disheveled. Um, the funny thing she said to me later on was like, I was dressed like shit. And I remember that morning, because all I've been doing is hanging out with other drug addicts. I made a real effort to dress up as nice as possible <laughs> to go in to see her. <laughs> but I still looked like shit apparently. And so anyway, I sat in there. I sat in her office. <laughs> I was in there for three hours, right? And we spoke about drugs for like two minutes, right? Because yeah. I thought that I thought the drugs were my problem. It was it looked yeah. it looked quite clear if you looked at my life that drugs were the main problem in my life. Okay. Not so. She explained to me that look, we've got this whole list of emotions here and all this heavy stuff down here, this guilt, shame, anger, fear, sadness, hurt. You've got so much of that stewing in your system that you use drugs to numb it out for a short amount of time, you know, and, and ice and GHB work for you for someone else. Alcohol works for someone else. Shopping works for someone else. Yeah. Heroin works, you know, but then whenever you stop using all of this stuff comes back to the surface. Yeah. And so you, we yeah. keep using, we keep using, we keep using, we're just trying to numb out the things that are stewing in our system that we haven't dealt with. And that, that made intuitive sense to me. I was like, that does actually sound like my experience. So then she's like, all right, well, let's find out why we've got so much heavy emotion stored in your body, right? So that's when we decided to jump into some memories from my past. So she was doing trauma therapy, <clears throat> basically, and trying to work out where a lot of emotions were stuck from my past and also beliefs. And you spoke about the, the not being vulnerable one. So I had this... Um, uh, memory from when I was four years old to do with my brother. So my brother, uh, 14 years older than me, right? And he was like uh, my hero growing up. And he's like the best brother ever. Like I, I would look back and be like, I would always want to kick the footy with him. And like, you know, I, I'm six and he's 20, but he'd always do it with me. So he was just my absolute hero. So a lot of my stuff was the fear of losing him, 
you know, and like yeah. when he would get girlfriends or when he moved out and that kind of thing was a very traumatic experience for me. So there was this event when I was four years old, when I had decided to shut down and, and not be vulnerable. This is when the belief was birthed. And so from that point on from four years old, then that belief just plays out in not being vulnerable in pretty much every situation in my life. And so I, wow. I, up until this point, you know, I was in this office with Melissa, I would have been 30, 30 or yeah, I think 30. And um, I hadn't cried for like 15 years, right? Wow. That's so unhealthy. <laughs> like I thought that I wore that as a badge of honor, you know, this whole you know, <laughs> boys, don't, boys don't cry and all that kind of thing. And, and it was mate, it was to do with this vulnerability thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm not going to let anyone see me cry. So once we went back and we dealt with that, we dealt with the emotion and the belief and I saw where it started and I'm like, holy crap, I've been shut down for that long. Guess what happened? I started bawling my eyes out. Like, wow. like you would not believe, you know, like all of these pent up tears just started pouring out of my face. And it was, it was confronting, but also amazing at the same time. It was like, this is uncomfortable, but I feel like this needs to happen. Yeah. And so once those walls came down, when I'm like, hey, I actually can be vulnerable, then we started to look at, you know, my marriage breakup, which I hadn't dealt with. I remember friends would ask me, like, we literally 10 years together, married house. And like two weeks later, my friends are checking, how are you? I'm like, yeah, I'm over it. No problem. Bullshit. <laughs> absolutely bullshitting myself you know so we had to go back and deal with all the emotion the sadness the anger around that marriage breaking up and then we started to look at other events from my childhood you know one of the other beliefs that we worked on in that session which was really the really the key to to me not using drugs anymore was i had a deep-seated yeah. belief that not only I didn't love myself, I didn't like myself, I fucking hated who I was as a human being. And, and not, not from like the using drugs and everything, but we're talking once again from around the age of four or five, just a belief was created that I just, I hate who I am as a human being. There's something inherently wrong with me. So imagine yeah. that, right? Imagine you have a friend that you fucking hate, right? You can deal with that. You can tell your friend to fucking go home or you can leave their house and go home. You can not be friends with them anymore. If you hate who you are as a person, there's no escape. Wherever you yeah. go, you are. So then how do we deal with that? We deal with that by creating a different state of consciousness through alcohol and drugs or whatever other means there is because that's the only way I can escape myself is to completely change my, my state of consciousness. So it made complete yeah. sense to me that that's how I would escape myself. That's what, that's what addiction is. It's a desire to escape the desire to escape the self because the self is too painful. Now for me, 100%. hating myself was, was very, very painful. So I went back and dealt with all the, the sadness, all the emotion um, to do with that. And then I was able to look at this little like five-year-old kid and go, man, if that was any other kid and not me, would I say to them, you deserve to hate yourself for the rest of your life? And I'm like, man, that's so rough. I'm getting tingles now thinking about it, right? So all of a sudden, I just had massive compassion for that five-year-old me and I was able to realize, hey, this kid's fine. There's nothing at all wrong with him and he deserves to love himself. And when, yeah. I, when, I, when I had that um, epiphany or experience, I just felt my entire body relax for the first time that I could remember, right? Wow. So I, I would call it, I felt peace for the first yeah. time probably since before, you know, I was five years old and I'd spent my whole life, I think, trying to chase this state of excitement or high energy or enthusiasm. That's why so many stimulants involved when all of a sudden I felt this peace and I'm like, 
ah, oh, this is what I was looking for. All of those years, the alcohol, the drugs, the, the compulsive gym, the women, all of that stuff. I was just searching for this. I was just searching for wow. peace, right? Wow. And so in that moment, I kind of realized, oh, I don't need to use drugs anymore. Because if I, if I don't need to escape myself anymore, who needs drugs, you know? Yeah. So I left, I sort of came out of that experience you kind of, during that, when we're going back and looking at the memories and everything, your eyes were shut. And I kind of came out of that and opened my eyes. And it was literally, I felt like a different person, like a, yeah. new, a, new, a new human. And so I was like, wow, that was, that was quite incredible. So I, just, I knew I had this inner knowing now that I don't need to use drugs. So I left yeah. her office. And then I basically spent the next probably day just cutting ties with everyone in that scene. So everybody that, you know, owed me money, I was like, Hey, you don't owe me money anymore. Don't worry. I'll see you some other time. The girl I was dating, I broke up with her. Um, I got like everything. I got sort of all my affairs in order, so to speak. And yeah. then went home and slept for four days, which is <laughs> toxic from <laughs> ice. <laughs> slept for four days, woke up and I'm like, okay, wow. If I've just gone through that, I got really curious. I'm like, what, what else have I got going on in here that I haven't dealt with? Because once again, I thought that nothing bad had happened to me or I had no, no trauma from my childhood or nothing yeah. went wrong, so to speak. When that wasn't true, it's such a subjective idea of, of what trauma is or what went wrong. And I, after going through that experience, I'm like, man, there's some other stuff going on in here that uh, I can look at. So I started seeing her once a week. We're unpacking, we're unpacking, we're unpacking. And um, throughout that process, I just got curious, you know, about I was reading different books, watching different videos, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And, you know, about week six or so, I had the, we did a session, I had the vision or the epiphany that I was going to open up a center one day to help people who were in my situation, you know, wow. whether, it's, whether it's the drugs or alcohol or whether it's, you know, depression, anxiety, stress, just people that are struggling. And so I just took a deep dive into all of the, the teachings. You know, I went and uh, was doing a diploma in mental health and AOD, which was good. It was good fun. You know, the teachers were good and all that. But that, that it represented the old system to me. Yeah. Right. Because I, I kept, I was the annoying kid in class. I just put my hand up every five minutes. Uh, when are we getting the trauma? When are we getting distorted prints from the past and blah, blah, blah. Like, That's not part of the curriculum. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I, I went back to Melissa and just said, look, Teach me everything that you know. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care what I have to do. Just, just, just teach me. So I took a deep dive into that. I got to a point where Melissa said, all right, I've taught you everything I know. And I'm like, sweet, I'm going to open up this center. And um, that kind of got her fired up as well because she'd been doing a bit of work with, you know, some business owners, a bit of depression, yeah. anxiety. But, you know, I'd sent her a few people in the struggling with drugs and everything as well. And they got great results. And um, she's like, look, if I can help you in any way, just, just let me know. And I said, hey, why don't we start this thing together? And she's like, all right, let's do it. So we start the, it was the Melbourne Centre of Healing back then uh, at the start of 2016, end of 2015, around then. And um, yeah. we sort of... Yeah, it was, we, we both didn't have any money. You know, I was in debt from my, my previous life. I had lawyer's fees and all that. And we got this really dingy little retro office in Hampton East. I had to borrow money off my mum and dad to pay for the first, first month's rent. Um, oh, no. All that kind of stuff. And um, we thought, look, let's start this, right? Let's help people holistically, you know, but mainly with their trauma, okay, from their past, yeah. from their childhood, and help deal with, deal with the actual reason behind the addiction or behind the depression or behind the anxiety and not just try and manage the symptoms and that kind of thing. And so I'm like, if, let's just do it. If it, it was like an experiment, 
if it doesn't work, we'll just go out of business really fast because we had no money. Like we, we go to business or yeah. if it does work, we'll be able to keep going and hopefully see more people and, and grow. And so luckily, you know, we were able to start seeing the early clients. I was lucky to get an article in the Herald Sun, like the week that we opened and that sort of got the phone ringing and we started getting good results. And so sort of things happened from there where we grew and we ended up with a team of five and amazing and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that, that's, that's where it all started. That's why I'm not a tradie anymore, Jack. That's, it's, it's an unbelievable story, mate. And it's, it's really inspiring. And again, like, it's funny, I find this with a lot of people, particularly yourself, I don't know if it's where similar age and similar, brought up in a similar area, stuff like that. But I had the same thing. Um, it's turned out a little bit differently, but I still went and did it. Like I was sitting in rehab and, I was literally sitting on the chair one day and I didn't tell anyone because I was kind of embarrassed, but I thought I'm going to own a rehab one day. I'm going to do like, I'm going to do this. And then it happened in like two years or something. And I was kind of doing that. And then anyway, things completely changed from there and just my views of things and all that stuff. But it's funny how that stuff happens. And yeah, the, the wanting to help come, kind of comes from the destruction of the past. It's really cool. It's really cool. So I want to ask you a few questions. There's so much in your story that I want to, um, that I want to unpack. I think the thing that I kind of get the question from with a lot of people that talk to me or listen to the show and, and have their opinion or whatever, like, did you, did you find, cause it sounds like most of um, what drove your addiction you know, you only found out about it later on, but most of what drove it was all the stuff that you said going on underneath the surface, the trauma and the negative belief systems, all that stuff. But did you find that, you know, there was like any physical elements that came into play that, you know, you hear a lot of people talking about addiction is like a, it's like a personality or it's a disease or there's a physical component. And also, did you find that there was some drugs that were like worse than others and, and kind of more addictive than others? You know, did that come into play at all in your story? Yeah, look, there's, there's a physical component to it when you're using definitely because like yeah. any drug is going to have an effect on the physiology that you're going through. So yeah. that's why, you know, when, when someone is using, then they're going to, there's going to be a physical hook to, to keep using, but like, that's mm. only a part of the story. Cause you know, I, before I started using every day, I would go through these binges. Right. And so it's like you, you would binge beyond drugs. You'd go through the, the detox or withdrawal phase and your body would return to, to homeostasis to a degree. But then I kept wanting to, during that, and during, you know this, Jack, during that come down phase, you're like, I'm never fucking doing this again. Right? <laughs> That's a, a week later, you're like, I'm definitely doing this again, right? Yeah, so it's like yeah. you, you, you've come back to baseline from a physiological point of view, but then we keep wanting to use and we keep wanting to do it. Right. So it's, 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 there's a physical component, but it's, it's definitely emotional and psychological. That's the biggest hook for people. You yeah. know, it's like uh, Dr. Carl Hart out of Columbia university has done some wonderful studies. And so he's Interesting. shown that. Yeah. yeah. And so he, he's shown that of all the people who start using drugs about 10 to 20% become dependent or addicted, right? which means yeah. 80, 80 to 90% don't. Right. And this is what the general public don't understand. Yeah. Cause we have this, you know, these different ads on TV or different campaigns where they say like, not even once, or, you know, you do it once you hooked or three times you hooked. And I'm just like, stop feeding people bullshit. 
And this is where drug, I think drug education in school needs to change massively as well. Because all we're trying to do is trying to scare, scare, scare kids and tell them don't ever do drugs, right? So imagine if you have a drug education program, right? And the big message is like, just don't do it. But then maybe 80% of it is actually quite good information. What happens? Kids grow up and they're going to do drugs. <laughs> like yeah. we, we experiment with drugs. That's what we do. What they do, they try drugs and they feel great. Then they go, yeah. what happens? They think back to the education and go, that was all bullshit because they yeah. told me never to do it and they're horrible. Now I've done it and they're great. So they just throw everything they might have learned, all that good information out the window as well. So then the question becomes, um, if 10 to 20% of people who start using drugs become addicted, what makes that 10 to 20% susceptible to addiction? Right. And so, and people will think like, nah, but for heroin and, and methamphetamine, it must be way higher than that. It's not, it's not all drugs fall between that 10 to 20%, you know? So then, yeah, what makes them susceptible? And so from my point of view, it's this, this trauma, this emotional baggage we're holding onto from the past. that's giving us a desire to escape. This is why when I first started using ecstasy, like I said, my friends, no dependence or addiction. They just every few months have a bit of fun. Me, I would be either using it or thinking about using it pretty much all the time. Right? Yeah. I just, I just, there's, there's no evidence to say that there's some sort of genetic uh, predetermination for addiction or alcoholism. Now, yeah. now maybe there's a, there's a pre predisposition. So maybe you might be more likely, but there's no predetermination. There's nothing like that's been found. Right. Mm. So even 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 if someone has a predisposition to addiction, then if we create an environment where we're not accumulating trauma or we've dealt with it and our actual environment in our life is is healthy, then we're very, very unlikely to fall down the path of addiction. And plus, yeah. you know, the, the field of epigenetics says that you, let's say that there was hypothetically and there's not uh, an addiction or alcohol gene, then if you lived your life a certain way, that gene may never get turned on your entire life. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. Um, and I love asking people the questions, you know, like, obviously I'm like you, I've done all the reading on it and stuff. And that's the thing that was very, has been very um, kind of confusing for me in this whole like transformational journey. I'm interested to ask you about it as well is that, you know, unlike yourself, I kind of found, I'm, I'm very grateful that, you know, I found recovery in one way or another, but I sort of came through that traditional system, went into a rehab, um, sort of, yeah, got told that I had a disease, um, you know, did the 12 step programs, which in a lot of ways saved my life and was fantastic for many years. But then just as I've kind of gone through lots of different transformations and stuff myself, come to think differently through researching stuff and all that sort of jazz. Um, and have found exactly the same thing that, yeah, the, the academic literature is very, very inconclusive of any kind of disease um, or any kind of physical condition that says this is exactly what addiction is. It's not like, um, it's not like diabetes or anything like that where the medical field goes no this is actually what happens in the organs in your body and this is how yeah there's nothing like that for addiction so it, but, uh, it is that, very... that's actually that's actually sorry to cut you off track that's actually a good analogy because if you yeah. think about type 1 and type 2 diabetes that's right right so it's like that's what the, the disease model of addiction would say it's like type 1 diabetes right mm. whereas i would say it's much more like type 2 diabetes and so here's the thing, yes. type two di diabetes can be reversed 
through lifestyle and through what you're eating and that kind of thing. Not to say addiction will, will be fixed by what you're eating, but I'm saying there are steps that you can take to reverse that. So it's like, I don't have to have type two diabetes for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's interesting. So the question I want to ask you is, so how many years has it been now since you've been like in recovery and you went through that whole journey? Um, hang on, let me think, Jack. I'm not, I'm not a day counter. Uh, it's, 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 it's somewhere between five and six years, I think five and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so can I ask you, do you, do you drink now or do you take other, any other drugs or anything? So you do drink. So how does that work? Because that's the, that's Mm. what a lot of people have questions about as well. When they come into this whole space, you know, people ask me that all the time. Like, can I, can I drink again or can I be kind of for a lack of a better word, like normal, you know, is my life over forever? Um, yeah. How, how, how does listen, that work? Because listen to that wording is my life over forever. <laughs> that's oh, right. That's it. right. <laughs> no, it's, it's look, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of what works for people. Okay. Yeah. So I, I also like, I have friends who like 12 step to save their life. Right. So they, they do 12 steps and save their life. So who the fuck would I be to tell them, hey, the, the, um, I don't agree with this disease model. I don't agree with identifying as an addict. You shouldn't. I would never say that because it's, it's literally saved their life, right? So for, but for me, I just have a different view. Like as a society, I'll get to the drinking thing in a minute. As a society, I think we're, we're moving from what we used to think addiction was, was a moral failing and a choice. And, and the, the judicial system still sees it that way. It is so fucking backwards, it's ridiculous. And I went through that whole, you know, court system and everything, and, and they have no idea what addiction is, <laughs> okay? Um, it is a choice and a moral failing. So you're just making a bad choice and you're an idiot and you should be punished and put in a cage, right? Which is crazy. And so then we've kind of evolved and the medical system, along with 12 steps, see it as a disease model, okay? Now that is much more compassionate because at least now it's like, okay, you have a disease, we can now be open to treatment and trying to, and trying to deal with that. So it is a very much more compassionate model, which, which is great. But now we're swinging and a lot more people are starting to understand that we really think addiction is a coping mechanism for some deeper emotional pain and trauma and dysregulated nervous system that's going on, yeah? Because if you think about that, like uh, addiction really is an attempt for us to regulate our nervous system at the end of yeah. the day. Now, a nervous system gets out of whack due to these, the way it's adapted in those early years and throughout our life, yeah. you know? And so we, we try and, if our nervous system's way too chaotic and intense and hectic, we try and numb it with some sort of depressant. If our nervous system's just shut down and we're in some sort of freeze response, we'll try and ramp it up with a stimulant. And we're always trying to make that balance. We're always just trying to find, we're always trying to get home, you yeah. know? And, and, and the thing is, drugs don't fully work, but they work a little bit. And this beautiful saying I heard recently is we can never get enough of something that almost works. Yeah. And, 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 and when a drug addict finds that a drug almost works, but it's, it's the best option they've got. They don't know what else could possibly work. So they keep going for it. So when it comes to, um, to drinking, so what I did personally, and this is kind of something I recommend for clients. I've had clients who, who, who don't full sobriety and just don't drink, even though, you know, their, their drug of choice might've been ice or, or cocaine or something. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, for a lot of them, uh, what I did is I just tested it. You know, I was clean for off everything for a, for a few months and, and I hadn't had alcohol for a long time because you can't, you don't take uh, GHB with alcohol. It doesn't, it doesn't mix. Yeah. And I was on yeah. GHB. Definitely so doesn't I, mix. <laughs> I was on GHB literally every moment that I was awake. So, um, <laughs> 
after I was clean for everything for a few months, uh, it was around um, footy finals time, right? And, and my, my Kangas were playing. We don't play much in the finals these days, but we, we did back then. And, um, <laughs> and so uh, we were going, I was going out with a few boys to the pub to watch it. And my best mate was going. And what I did, I just thought, you know, I might try having a beer tonight. Because what happened in the past, same with drugs. When I would drink, I just would drink to excess and I couldn't stop. You know, I would yeah. stop until I literally would, would be start passing out or I would drink until then I went to get drugs, right? So mm. it was just this, it was always this extreme, you know, want to escape. Now, the work that I had done on my own trauma, I didn't feel that need to escape. So I'm like, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a different experience when I drink beer, but I don't know because I haven't done it. So I messaged yeah. my mate before we went and I said, uh, Phil, I'm like, hey, mate, just to let you know, I'm going to have a, a couple of beers tonight. First time I've done it in a long time. Um, I just wanted to let you know. I think I'll be okay, but just like keep an eye on me, you know. But I was going to keep yeah. an eye on myself as well. So we went out, watched the footy. Um, I may have had uh, two pints, had a bit of fun, went home, went to bed. And I woke up the next morning. I'm like, oh, that was cool. No, no gremlins, no desire to drink more, no desire to get drugs, right? None of that kind of stuff, right? So now um, when I drink, you know, it'll be in a social situation and I can have one or two drinks. So once again, yeah. it's like how I spoke about um, when I was younger with the ecstasy with me and my friends. Now I'm talking about me. So alcohol, same substance, right? One experience yep. over here where I can't stop. One experience over here where I can have one or two and stop. Exact same substance. So what changed? The change was the desire to escape. Yeah. Right. So so Love now, it. like after a drink or two, I'm like, you know, I, I want to wake up fresh tomorrow. I don't want to have any more. <laughs> so, but Such but a- then, but, but like I said, for some people, you know, who who are worried about it, because the whole thing's fear. Okay, and this is where a lot of that. Sure. You know, you know, I've got to, I have to start my days again if I have a drink or blah, blah. It's, it's all very fear, fear, fear. And like, and that's why, you know, I'm not a fan of, you know, getting to the end of the day and going, yes, I didn't do drugs today. Let's see how I go tomorrow. I'm more focused. I don't even think about it. You know, people are like, do you get cravings? I'm like, no, because I don't think about it. Or they say, do you reckon you'll ever use drugs again? And I say, I don't know. Well, what do you mean? Does that mean you will? I'm like, I don't know because I don't think about it. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm thinking about what I want to create for my family or my business or, or that inner peace that I'm trying to cultivate, you know, still five years down the track. It's sort of, you know, we don't want to be making decisions out of fear, in my opinion. Because it's so sorry, I'm, this is an important topic because I went, started going to um, NA because I was in the process of kind of formulating how the center was going to look. And a friend was going to NA and I'm like, I'll come with you to some meetings. And um, I thought it was the community aspect was great. I think yeah. people that are getting together who all kind of have a common goal. It's like we want to get past this and want to get better. And community is so very important. But then I saw people as well who had been clean for like 10 plus years. And I'm like, they're not really clean because they are so fucking angry. They are so pissed off. And I feel like they're just, they're holding on <laughs> every day. They're holding on for dear life. And that's why I like, I don't, I say getting clean, like drugs is just part of that. You know, yeah. I there's no point in getting clear from drugs if you're just going to be anxious and pissed off every day of your life. Yeah, mate, super interesting. I love the way that you talk about it because it is a hard thing to explain because there's a lot of complexity around it. And it's interesting what you said. I'm kind of largely the same. You know, it's funny because I've had lots of different experiences right throughout the recovery space just in terms of my own personal journey um and you know i if it's working for people i I won't go and actively tell them that it's uh 
bad for you to, you know, think of yourself as an addict. And I agree with you. I, I think there's, from having experienced it myself and it being such a large part of changing my life, the community aspects of 12-step programs, all that stuff is magic. Uh, but I, I actually think that it's very unhelpful for people to think of themselves as like an addict, you know? Um, and it's something that I've come to learn in the last sort of three, I would say three years, like that when you can change the beliefs that you have about yourself and the identity that you form for yourself, there's this whole kind of cascading effect that happens with the rest of your life and your behavior and everything. And it, and it kind of changes the programming largely because that's what I've seen um, as maybe one of the negative aspects is thinking about addiction through that kind of paradigm in 12 step. I've seen people that go like 30 years without using drugs. Right. But in that 30 years, they tell themselves, um, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. Even if I pick up again after 30 years, it's going to end up, just like it was 30 years ago when I was like 25, you know, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. And they, and they sort of tell themselves this story for so long that if they do have a drink, the programming kind of kicks in unconsciously and then boom, like their whole life just blows up and everybody goes, how the fuck did that happen? It's this crazy disease in the background, but really it's just this kind of programming. It's, it's the same as like, yeah, like, marketing essentially for mcdonald's you know you see the ad for the burger enough times on the tv even though you know consciously that it's unhealthy to eat if you just have that barrage in your head you're gonna go and eat it like and and that's proven that that happens to um humans so yeah it's it's really interesting so i actually talk to people about that a lot like you know maybe there's a different way to think about yourself in, in terms of not being an addict, just someone that needs to work through some stuff. So yeah, it's well, interesting. Beliefs, beliefs uh, always want to perpetuate themselves. And so if I've told myself um, that, you know, I know that if I pick up a drink, I won't be able to stop. And, I've, and that, that, that becomes a belief. Then guess what? When I do pick up a drink, I won't be able to stop. And then that'll confirm the belief. See, I told you, I told you you wouldn't be able to stop. And it's like That's these... Right loops to keep perpetuating you're um you're exactly right there so yeah it's like you know i always tell people you you stopped being an addict stop the day you stopped using drugs you know yeah and people understand that more i think and this is why um we've been moving a lot more into the the education space as well because you know like you spoke about at the start this is kind of stuff that we you know being in this industry for a while and we just it's just it, we, we find it weird that it could be seen as an alternative view because it just makes so much sense. And after working with yeah. people, it happened over and over again. And um, the amount of times when we had the, the physical center, so the center was a, uh, an outpatient kind of rehab, so to speak. So we're doing yeah. trauma therapy, um, <clears throat> a kinesiologist working with the body, some, you know, natural supplements to help, um, you know, they could reach out from home. And so it was like an all natural um, holistic program, infrared sauna, float tank therapy, but, but the backbone was just trauma therapy. But what would happen, people would come in originally and see me for initial consultation because, you know, and, and I'd sit there with them for half an hour or 45 minutes, find out about them, but then sort of explain how we work and, and, and really in doing that, explaining to them why they're addicted or why they've got depression or why they've got anxiety. And for me, it just like, you know, I could, I could do it in my sleep and it makes so much sense, but just over and over and over again, like 98% of people would sit there and go, Oh God, 
that makes complete sense. I had no idea why I was addicted. And so I'm like, man, we need to really just create so much more education because what we can't change what we don't understand. We can't change what we're not aware of. And we also, mm. we fear what we don't understand as well. You know? mm. And so once people can understand that, hey, yes, I'm addicted right now and I am for a very good reason. Right. Now, I might have to then dig into those specific exact reasons, but there's very, very good reasons there as to why I need drugs or alcohol to cope with my life and my existence. Mm, yeah. Because, so because, if it's, because if it's a disease that I have for life, then I'm just trying to manage all the time. And like we mm. said, that's fine. For, if that's how you want to live your life, no problem. No problem at all. Yeah. But for a lot of people, that are, we don't want to have to just manage, you know, we want to have to, we can live a, you know, an amazing life. Like if you had said to me when I was, you know, blowing out on GHB every day and, you know, no money to my name and in tattered, torn clothes, that, that, that a few years later, I'd be, you know, running a successful business, living on a fucking tropical island with a two-year-old boy, you know, I'd be like, really? <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is that a dream? But if I subscribe to the, just, I just need to manage things model, I wouldn't put all this pressure on myself for starting a business. I would have been worried about having a kid and, and all that kind of stuff. So I just don't think we want to limit ourselves because we can change. We can change very quick. 100%. Mate, I love the, I love the way that you explained it and particularly around the fear and stuff like that. It's, um, it's super spot on and, and really interesting. So you, you said that, you know, the catalyst to open the center of healing and work with people was obviously through your own experience and the healing experience that you had with Melissa and, and all that sort of stuff. And you sort of touched on it briefly there, but what you're doing now, which is, I think, um, and, you know, explain it a bit more, but now you're working more with professionals, I guess, teaching them this model of, of care and, and how to really kind of get to the core of people's issues and stuff like that. And as you said, the education, is that what sparked it, what you touched on? Just kind of almost like coming into work, hitting the play button and just recording like the same thing that you, you were saying to people every single day. Is that kind of what sparked wanting to do this with others? Yeah, yeah. We just, our whole idea when we even started the centre was to sort of just create this ripple effect. You know, we could see, we could see things moving in this direction anyway. Like I, I remember as we were sort of formulating how the centre would look and everything and I hadn't, you know, I hadn't heard of people like Gabor Mate and, and Dr. Carl Hart and that kind of thing. And, and someone sent me a, a clip of, of Gabor's and uh, made me cry. He explained, it's called What is Addiction? Gabor Mate on YouTube goes for three minutes. And I'm like, oh, there's other people in the world who have the exact same view as me, even though I haven't heard from them. And it's like, yeah. so, so we, we, we just wanted to create a ripple effect. And, you know, originally we were going to try, uh, open up different centers around the place, but then, you know, the moving online changed all that. So we thought, let's see if we can train other therapists in our method of helping people with addiction or depression, anxiety, or that kind of thing in our particular trauma therapy. So now we're, yeah. we're, we're still seeing clients um, online via zoom. So we're doing the trauma yeah. therapy that way, but um, our real main focus is, is getting people trained in, in root cause therapy, which is a trauma therapy mm -hmm. that we'd used at the center. Um, and then also uh, we're just launching a new modality to deal with trauma called embodied processing um, myself and Matt Nettleton, are, uh, literally just launching that over the next few weeks. Um, and well, so once again, and it's, it's the, the best feeling in the world to, you know, see that, you know, we'll get a, we have like a private Facebook group for all the students and they'll post in there. They're like, did this session with someone yesterday? This is what happened. It was bloody amazing. And that just fills our heart. Cause now we can see the ripple effect, you know, cause like, you know, we train someone and that changes their life in the way they show up. And then all of a sudden they work with someone 
dealing with you know alcoholism and depression and they get an incredible result but that doesn't just affect them that then affects that person's family and all their friends and everything and so the idea is just keep trying to spread the love in sort of whatever way that we can and then we kind of combine that we've got different online courses for families of addiction um understanding trauma um what else have we got just just self-inquiry like investigating our relationship to our thoughts and emotions so because once again education like i said when i do those consults um just that education piece once people start to understand the situation and the, the families one's really interesting because um we made that course and i'm like i don't know if families are going to want to hear this because <laughs> we're basically telling families to address their own part of it and stop trying to fix the, the person um but we've had just an amazing uh response from that so i think people are in a place where they do want to hear um a little bit more truth around that so yeah it's education and, and it's obviously trying to create that ripple effect and training a lot of other people to to deal with these issues in a different way amazing amazing so um i wanted to ask you like because and you even said it for yourself at the start um yeah when people listen to the show obviously trauma is coming a lot more into the vernacular i think not just around addiction but around a lot of things um and a lot of people will say to me you know just like you said, oh, I've got this addiction issue, but I don't have any trauma. Like I never got um, sexually assaulted or like I grew up in a loving family or whatever it is. So can you just explain like what trauma actually is a little bit more and, and flesh it out? Yeah. Well, so we're kind of getting into semantics because we can all, you know, we've all got a different meaning for words at the end of the day. So I suppose it's kind of how you define it. Um, I classify trauma as, uh, it's like a samskara in the Hindu literature. It's an impression that gets left on us. It's an undigested life experience. Okay. Yeah. So we classically think of trauma as like what you said, sexual abuse, physical abuse, car crash, veteran returning from war. And then people go, well, I haven't got any of that. So I'm not traumatized. Okay. That, yeah. that stuff definitely is trauma. <laughs> trauma is also some experience. So let's say, um, Let's say I'm in grade two and I'm a bit of a bit of a shy kid and I want to put my hand up in class and answer a question. And I put my hand up and the teacher tells me I'm wrong and the entire class laughs at me and is like kind of pointing at me, right? And I feel all this shame and fear. Okay. Yeah. Now, for a lot of kids, they might install that impression. For some kids, they might completely internalize that shame and fear, not be able to deal with the actual emotion because we're not taught how to deal with emotions. Okay. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't learn it at school. Mum and dad didn't know how to do it. So we're never taught how to deal with it. So we internalize. So if I internalize that shame and not deal with it, I can start to create a belief about myself that I'm never going to speak up again. Right. So then what happens this, this, this root event starts what's called a gestalt, which is a series of events in our life that are all linked, which means that, you know, 20 years later, I can go to speak up to my boss at work and ask for a raise and that exact same fear and shame comes up in my system and I don't do it. Or I'm in a relationship and I want to express to my partner my needs. And as soon as I go to speak up, that fear and shame comes up and I shut down. Okay. That's a trauma response. I've stored that impression in me. I wasn't able to digest that experience. You know, um, one of them for me was I was seven years old and I was waiting for my dad to get home from work. And I was just so excited because I wanted to kick the footy with him. Right. And so mum's in the kitchen making dinner. I'm running up to her every 20 seconds. I'm like, mom, when's dad coming home? When's dad coming home? She's like, yeah, soon, soon. I'm annoying the hell out of her. Finally, dad pulls in the driveway and I run out to the car holding the footy. And I'm like, dad, let's kick the footy. 
for whatever reason, he just snaps, just goes off at me. So like, I'm not bloody kicking the footy, get inside. Just starts berating me, which is really out of character for my dad. He's a nice guy. But I've gone from ecstatic to crushed and I run to my bedroom bawling my eyes out and I have all this sadness and hurt come up in me and I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, like I said, yeah. I wasn't taught, right? So the sadness and hurt is so intense and I never want to feel that again. So my trauma response, trauma is very intelligent, right? So it starts to create a belief that I'm not worthy and I'm not good enough, right? Mm. And that's in order to try and protect me from feeling that emotion to the same extent when I'm older. It's, it's basically trying to prepare me for threat. It's a survival mechanism, okay? Mm. What's a survival mechanism in the moment becomes very dysfunctional later in life. So all of a sudden... I have this belief that I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. So let's say 10 years later, I'm 17 and a school teacher, a male school teacher yells at me the same kind of way my dad did that day. Guess what? Seven-year-old Ryan comes up that same feeling of sadness and hurt and that same feeling or voice that says you're not worthy. You're not good enough. Okay. And this keeps happening. That's two examples I've given. We have dozens, if not hundreds of these going on. So all we're doing is we're playing out these loops. So what happens? We're feeling the same emotions over and over again. We think that an emotion we feel today is new. It ain't new. It's an echo from the past. And we just have these echoes going on over and over the time. That's why things are so subjective. That's why I can, walk into it or some two people can be listening to me, to me talk now and one of them will go oh, i love this guy i love what he's talking about this is awesome someone else will go this guy sounds like an absolute dickhead and i can't stand him so right. who's right none of them are right <laughs> they're just yeah. they're making a a assumption based on their emotional imprints from the past i might yeah. i might have a voice that sounds like their uncle who was an absolute asshole to him then when they were younger and that's what their decisions being made of so what happens we have all these little traumas you know that happen and neglect is a trauma so this is this can be even more pervasive you know like i was you know if babies are left to cry it out you're about to have a baby jack like this is something to think about it's a very touchy subject for people if babies are left to cry it out when they're really really young that can cause massive nervous system dysregulation and trauma in their system right because yeah. they go from a they go into a uh, sympathetic nervous system response which is crying and anger and if their needs aren't met then they'll go into a shutdown or freeze response and all of a sudden we'll go, oh, they stopped crying. Good. Yeah, they stopped crying, but they've gone into a complete shutdown and freeze response. And if that happens enough, they'll become a shutdown and frozen adult. And they'll start to try and use things to try and deal with that. So trauma is, is very, very more open than what a lot of people think. And trauma is part of the human condition. Like we all have them to a varying degree. So if you imagine we're on a spectrum, as soon as that spectrum is, we start to dip towards the, the, the heavier end. This is when we're going to start to need to use things to try and deal with that. It's like, you know, yeah. I use the analogy of like we're born with an invisible backpack and that backpack's nice and light. You know, we may have some imprints from in the womb or, or genealogically, but it's pretty, pretty empty. And then we go through experiences of life emotionally that we're not able to digest and process. So we kind of chuck a potato in the back and then we keep chucking these potatoes in the back. And over time, that thing gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier and we get older and we might you know have a good dnm with a friend or talk to someone we might let one or two potatoes go but more's going in that's coming out and so over time the emotional load gets heavy when that emotional load gets heavy enough we'll manifest some type of symptom that can be depression anxiety bipolar addiction alcoholism codependent relationships addiction to sex shopping food whatever it is it will manifest in different ways but it comes from this heavy emotional load which means we want to escape from that feeling of heaviness so it's mate the way that you're able to articulate 
what goes on through someone's kind of human experience emotionally, mentally, and I guess spiritually in a way is, is unbelievable. And it really, it makes so much sense when you explain it. So the, the question that automatically jumps into my mind, right? Um, Cause this show for me is kind of partly selfish as well. You know, I want to get good ideas out there to people that might be, you know, struggling with addictions or interested in drugs and alcohol, whatever it is. But, it's also a bit of like discovery for myself as well. And the question that jumps into my mind and that I always have is, is surely everybody experiences some of those um, things in their life growing up or whatever it might be that you just described. But what's the difference between you and me that have had those experiences that end up, you know, sucking on the end of an ice pipe all day or whatever um, to, you know, people that, that don't is it is it like that thing that almost like that russell brand says is that like everybody's addicted in some way it's a, like a sliding scale it just might not be to drugs and alcohol or to something that's completely harmful like like what what is the difference like what yeah i, I don't know if you can answer that but it's just a okay. thing that i always find interesting yeah yeah no, absolutely so so there's probably there's probably two answers to that and one is the people who tend to, you know, not accumulate as much trauma or end up at the heavy end of the spectrum, which is going to result in a coping mechanism, had some conditions in their life early on where they were able to actually work through that. So they had very, very strong attachment um, yeah. relationship to their caregiver, mainly their mother, where they felt safe. Okay, safety is is everything. Right? We run into issues in life when that connection isn't strong, um, and so we don't feel safe in our own skin after that. Okay, even if we go through something at school and we feel completely safe to open up and then talk to someone, especially a caregiver about that, means our system can start to come down. I was talking about the nervous system before. So um, without getting kind of too technical here, I spoke about sympathetic nervous system and shutdown response, which is called a dorsal vagal response. We also have something called a ventral vagal, which is what mammals have created, is that whenever we have social connection, especially early on, we can come out of those two dysfunctional nervous system states into a safe state right so that's why we're always going to have these, these traumatic circumstances but if we have someone who we can sit with comfortably and express to parents that are really emotionally aware i think that will happen in, in future generations to come then we're just going to accumulate less and less uh, of this baggage which means we're going to seek less for a coping mechanism later on there's that but now there's also you know people who are down that heavy end that don't turn to drugs or alcohol but what they do, they just find a coping mechanism that's more socially acceptable. You know, so let's say, you know, someone becomes a workaholic and all of a sudden they're working 60 hour weeks. Um, they're neglecting their wife and kids. They're an asshole when they get home. They're always stressed. Society would look at that person and go, look at them go, what a go getter. They're killing it, you know, right? But the thing is, that workaholic <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that junkie, in inverted commas, injecting on the street, it's the same trauma response. They've just found something different that worked, you know, because what happens, we'll, we'll kind of work through things to find out what works. So ICE and GHB work for me. Someone else, they might do that and go, that didn't work. Heroin works or alcohol works or sex works or relationships. Like so many codependent relationships right now trying to complete, complete ourselves with someone else. You know, that's a trauma response as well. So we just kind of, I think the answer to your question is we just find different responses to this stuff, but the people who've had really, really strong attachment and, and safe connection in those early years won't tend to be um, dipping into the coping mechanisms later in life. Super interesting. So um, 
Sorry, and do you still have a bit more time? I'm just, I've yeah. just got a few questions here. Cool. Um, as long as you need, mate. <laughs> uh, um, so, two questions. I'll ask the more charged one secondly, because you mentioned that you work with families and stuff. But how, how do you, how do you strike the balance with trauma? And and maybe this is a bit of like society narrative that's kind of run, running around in my head. Um, but how do you how do you strike the balance with like say like kids or or just people that are moving into recovery to kind of build resilience I guess you'd call it but also kind of be true to that vulnerability and and all that sort of stuff and not like fall into the victim mentality if that makes sense and I think like you mentioned men before as well that's the other thing that I wanted to kind of ask is how do how do men do all of that, but still be kind of um, manly, if you like, you know, like, I think there's some cool dudes out there that are starting to reshape the way that we think about, you know, a man, um, which is like guys like Aubrey Marcus and Kyle King, who are quite kind of that stereotypical manly guy, but then they're really into like a lot of this kind of vulnerability and connection stuff and all that. So, you know, how, how do you do that with people? How do you, help them to view themselves and kind of be true to their biological nature, I guess, but then also tap into some of these other aspects. Yeah. Well, for, for men in particular, it's being able to integrate anger. Men have a real shutdown of anger. Um, so do women actually. But um, for men, it's been, anger has been seen as such a destructive emotion. And for a mm. lot of men in our society, that emotion has been shut down big time. So we have a, a massive shutdown response whenever anger starts to come up in our system. That's super unhealthy because what happens, that anger will find destructive ways to come out in someone's life. So the more that we yeah. work with someone's anger and start to integrate that, anger starts to, because anger's power, like in a good way, not in a bad way. It can be in a bad way, but ang, anger is our power. So when you're talking about a healthy masculine, a healthy masculine is someone who, can be vulnerable so can get in touch with sadness and fear and and own that but then also they've integrated their anger so they're actually empowered yeah yeah because yeah because what happens if the man if a man hasn't integrated their anger and has just worked on all the vulnerability stuff yeah they become a very um feminine kind of man or so to speak no there's anything wrong with that but the, the classic kind of masculine we want to be able to hold both and so a lot mm -hmm. of men it is you, you want to touch on both because so many men don't have their anger integrated and so they don't know how to properly set their boundaries and express that and give it give a solid no yeah and the reason i ask that is not to kind of stereotype men and say that mm. this type of man is man is better than the other or whatever but I, I do notice it as a big issue is that when you get the kind of stereotypical manly man big burly blokes coming to do this kind of work you know it it's um it's very interesting to try and be able to navigate that with them and explain to them you know that they can uh, you know, do all these things and, and still be, you know, the man or the guy or the person that they want to be, you know. And oftentimes yeah. you have to really involve the partner in that as well because one, mm. of, the, one of the issues men have is that, that they, because I've had plenty of manly, burly guys just, you know, getting vulnerable and breaking down in tears and I love it, right? It's great. But then it's kind of, I love to speak to the partner as well in that instance because men, not saying woe is men here, but this is the issue we run into. Women will, a lot of women who haven't done their own work will berate men, be more vulnerable, tell me your feelings, open up to me. And then when a man does, they can't handle it. And they yeah, go, stop, they, stop, they stop, stop, be more stop. of a man. <laughs> 
because <laughs> you've got to imagine, man, we got, we got this pent up stuff for, for decades, a lot of us. And so when we, we go, oh, I'm going to open up, it's like, whoa. And then for women, they're like, well, that's too much. <laughs> put it back in, put it back in, right? So men, men have also, you know, we, we've been conditioned to put that back in because it's, it's taken so much. Imagine a man who's not been vulnerable for so long to finally become vulnerable and then that gets told to, you know, put it back in. Then we're like, oh, stuff that I'm not going to be vulnerable again. So oftentimes it's good to involve the partner in that because they need to be able to hold that. They need to be able to hold it. And then once they, if they can hold it, then all of a sudden you start to see a really healthy relationship because the man is safe to be vulnerable, but he's also safe to be a real man as well and be in his power. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's so interesting. And the other question I was going to ask you about these like trauma responses, you know, you were talking a lot about um, people's upbringings and feeling safe and all that sort of stuff. So when I imagine when you're working with people and these issues come up and I assume that's why you have the family program and all that sort of stuff, but how then do you kind of talk to families? Cause I've had that a lot from family members, family members as well is that they will then ring you up and just be hysterical because they feel like they've fucked their kid up or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, where in a way, they have like unintentionally or like those conditions have kind of sparked a lot of that, but it's, it's kind of not about blaming them either. Yeah. How, how do you deal with that? Or how do you talk to families about Yeah. That? There's a whole thing in the course we have about blame and, and how it doesn't work. And this spoke back to even with clients and that victim thing as well, like the whole victim perpetrator idea. We need to let go of those ideas as human beings. We have this inbuilt thing. If something is, is wrong, right. So it's like, you know, if I'm on drugs, something's wrong. Or if my, my son or daughter's on drugs, something's wrong. And if something's wrong, then someone must, to be, must be to blame. So we're automatically looking for someone to blame. Whereas blame just keeps us stuck. We can't move forward if we're blaming in any way. Um, I find that families, look, they're all going to be at a different place. And this is why I think education is so important. Everyone's going to be at a place where they're going to receive that education to a certain amount. But we want to plant seeds that will germinate at some point. There's some families who don't even want to hear about it. You know, I spoke to that many families at the center and uh, it <laughs> drove me insane. They were, they, were, they were less concerned that their son or daughter was an addict and more concerned that the other family members were starting to find out and it was going to affect their social status. And it's like, well, you've got a lot of work to do as opposed to your son or daughter. Um, then we've got like, you know, we had a, um, an, a Facebook group for family members of ICE addicts and that kind of thing. And, you know, uh, M- Melissa was doing that. I had to remove myself from the group because that, that, that's a group of people who don't want help. They just want to be able to complain to other people in a similar situation, right? Yeah. yeah. Then, then, then we've got, you know, our course, which is people who actually want this information and we've been getting great feedback from that. And then you've got people who, I, who was incredible. This lady, I, I did a talk um, with that Holly Sinclair, a mutual friend, and um, we we're talking about mental health and addiction. And I started talking about addiction and, and all that kind of stuff. And we finished the talk and this lady came up to me and um, she goes, yeah, I've got a son. 25 he's been struggling with ice addiction for for so and so long and i want to come and do your work and work on my traumas because i know that's the only way that i can best help him and i'm just like oh my heart my heart if only everybody could see it that way because what happens uh, a child or our loved one is playing out trauma responses uh, which is resulting in their addiction but then our response to that, our, our resistance to that is often our own trauma response as well. You know, the amount of people who I see, you know, they were growing up and their father was an alcoholic. And so they're just freaking out that their son or daughter is going to develop that problem. And if they, they start to go down that path, 
and they become like, you know, they become Hitler and they're just attacking and attacking and it drives the son or daughter further into that, that behavior. And, you know, a lot mm. of the courses is letting go of this whole fix it mentality. You know, we just got to, because, because here's the thing, if I need to fix someone, what is that? What message is that giving that person? It's giving that person yeah. a message. They're bro- they're broken in some way, and and the feeling yeah. that they're broken is one of the reasons why they're using. So I'm actually reinforcing the underlying belief as to why they're using. So it's just a it's a different paradigm that families need to take, but they're going to be in a different place as to how much they're going to receive that information. Yeah. But it's always my thought, like even even when people were coming in doing a consult with me and they couldn't quite grasp it. I knew that a seed was planted and I knew that whether it's a few months, a year or so, it was just going to, the light bulb was going to go off and they were going to, going to start to go and move in a better direction. Yeah. So interesting, mate. Well, where can people find you if they, if they, you know, have had a come to God moment or they just love what <laughs> you're kind of saying? Cause I've had a few, I've had a few kind of hair raises with listening to you explain it. Where, where's the best place for people to come and find the work that, that you yeah, guys are doing now? Just, um, this, this, this center for healing, um, on the socials. So, uh, Facebook and Instagram, the center for healing. And I'll just bring yep. up our courses site. Cause I always get the URL wrong courses.centerforhealing.com.au so it's got all of our courses and practitioner training and that kind of thing um but if you have a specific question about you know yourself or, or someone you know a loved one then, then send us a dm through instagram or facebook awesome man i'll make sure i put it in the show notes as well well look mate i really appreciate you coming on i feel like uh you're kind of in, embodied me of course like better looking and more intelligent um and just kind of you know yeah. really- that sounds like a, that sounds like a belief <laughs> <Need> a <shift. laughs> uh no but amazing mate. i've got amazing. a few more wrinkles since becoming a dad you'll go through that soon enough <laughs> uh, i hope so i hope so um yeah, thanks, mate. I appreciate. We'll, we'll definitely have you back on soon to talk about some more stuff because I've got like a thousand more questions for you. But yeah, that was awesome. All right, hope yeah, you enjoyed no the show, all, guys. Yes, this is new in 2021. We have outros. Um, no, but hope you really enjoyed the show. Uh, first one for 2021 to kick us off. Uh, I'll make sure that we have all the information for Ryan and the Center of Healing in the show notes. Um, make sure you follow us on socials and YouTube, Real Drug Talk, wherever and whatever platform you're on. Um, and also, if there's someone that you love or yourself is struggling with any addiction issues or issues with alcohol and other drugs, we run a treatment program called Connection Based Living. Um, and we have online programs, uh, coaching programs over like a short-term basis, six weeks and a 12-month program as well. Uh, And basically what we specialise in is that we help people uh, to transform their life out of addictive patterns without having to go to rehab. So if that's of interest to you, check out www.connectionbasedliving.com.au and that'll be in the notes as well. Um, looking forward to the next show um, and we're off for 2021. Hope everybody has a great couple of days until you hear us next time in your ears. Peace.